good to be with you guys tonight. I'm excited to finish up the book of John. We've been going through the book of John for about seven months now. I think it's about seven months, six or seven months. And uh, what a treasure it is, how precious it is how precious it is to see Jesus in the word, to see him revealing the character and nature of his father in the book of John. And as we come to a close, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to give me grace just to preach through this precious closing chapter, the epilogue, as I think, of the book of John, the the closing statement of Jesus' redemption to his beloved friend, Peter, and I don't know how I'm going to cry a lot during this message because my heart is so full. I titled this that God's kingdom has room for failures. Say hallelujah. God builds his kingdom in this earth on the backs of repentant failures, on repentant sinners on those who find his grace and his mercy so rich because they see the level of their denial, of their sin, of their disobedience compared to his mercy and his righteousness and they just cry out, thank you. And then they live lives of abandonment because they have found his love so precious. So let's pray. I'm gonna pray that I don't cry this whole message and that I have strength. (laughs) Lord, we just ask you right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, unlock your word to us, Lord. Unfold it like only you know how to do. Lord, we ask that we would have ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to us tonight. That we would have eyes to see in the scripture the beauty and the glory and the grace of of this man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, our brother and our savior and our redeemer and our restorer. Open our eyes to his glory tonight and allow this revelation to cause us to cling, to cause us to return, to cause us to run after him with zeal in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. We want that more than anything else. We agree with David. One thing do we desire. Lord, renew that desiring, seeking heart. That Psalm 63, earnestly I seek you. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. In a dry and weary land, I thirst for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Where we're gonna... Go through this quickly. Let's start with verse one. It says this. After this, well, I'm sorry, one announcement before we start the message. Whoa, I almost got into it and then pulled out, just dipped our toe in the water. After this and then, okay. So uh, we've been announcing for a couple weeks now that we're going to transition on June 6th to um, the book of First and Second Corinthians on Wednesday night, but we have had a kind of a sudden Holy Spirit shift, Holy Spirit turnaround. The Lord is 
been speaking to our leadership team, has been speaking to Pastor Mike, and, and we just feel the need in this season to set apart Wednesday nights solely for worship and prayer for the next extended season. We feel the Lord speaking to us that we need to take the next season and really, as a people, build a culture of prayer together corporately. That we come together, amen, amen, I like this. I like that we're excited. I'd be a little sad if the room was like, tweet, tweet. (laughs) I like that we're excited. This is a verse that the Lord put on my heart today when I was thinking about shifting Wednesday night. When we were thinking about shifting Wednesday night to nights of worship and nights of prayer. It's found in the book of Hosea, chapter 10. It says this, in verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, and then it says this, break up your fallow ground. Now, I think that's the fallow ground of our hearts. It says, sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy, break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. This is what Hosea says to his people. It's time to cry out to God. It's time to seek the Lord. And it says this, so that he comes and rains righteousness on you. We feel like the water level is rising. We feel like the Lord is giving us an invitation to an open heavens. And the Lord wants to send the rain. He wants to send Righteousness in its full manifestation. He wants healing. He wants deliverance. He wants prodigals returning. He wants the Holy Spirit empowering us to preach the gospel with boldness. He wants it all. And he's calling us. He's saying, it's time, Rock Church. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to set aside Wednesday night and look to me solely and cry out to me solely And cast your cares upon me because I care for you because this is his desire. He wants to rain his spirit down. He wants to pour out his spirit like it says in Acts 2, I will pour out my spirit in the last days because he wants us to prophesy well of him. He wants us to speak well of him. And it says at the end of that passage, so that all may call on the name of the Lord and be saved. I believe there is an awakening coming to this region. I believe we are just a f- we're just one congregation that's feeling that. But we are going to, as a people, worship him. And as a people, cry out to him in prayer. Amen? Now we're going to, we're going to, we'll, we'll limit the, the teaching on Wednesday night to, I mean, we're, we might give a little bit of instruction, like maybe five seven, ten minutes of exhortation in prayer so that we can grow and disciple one another in the place of prayer and in the place of worship. But our sole purpose is going to be to gather before the Lord, tell of his greatness back to him, and then cry out for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, if you do this, I'll answer you. If you seek me, I will send rains of righteousness upon your land. So we're going to do that. All right? 
So more information will come next week as well. And then we will start that on June 6th, okay? We will also start this service at 645 rather than 7. And we'll go 645 to 815. All right? Okay. Good. John chapter 21. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now that's just the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Now after this just means after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and they found themselves in Jerusalem, Jesus actually told them in Mark chapter 14, he says, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So the disciples were being obedient. They went to Galilee because that's where Jesus said he was going to go before them after he was resurrected and meet with them again. So they're being obedient. They're waiting, not in Jerusalem yet, as Jesus was going to say at his ascension, but they're waiting in Galilee. And I find this encouraging because we want to be where Jesus tells us to be. And if we are where he tells us to be, we get to experience him. Another way that the Lord spoke that to me this week was obedience leads to encounter. When we are where Jesus tells us to be, I feel like we get the promise that we are going to encounter him, his presence, and his spirit there. And Jesus says, after this, John tells us he reveals himself to his disciples. Again, it says later on that he revealed himself in this way. This revelation or this language of revelation is common in the Gospel of John. It said that the purpose of John the Baptist's coming was that so Jesus would be revealed to Israel. Same thing. The book of John opens up in John chapter 1. John the Baptist, his whole purpose was to reveal Jesus. And then Jesus' first miracle of changing water into wine, he revealed his glory. Then in John 17, we get Jesus' whole ministry was about revealing the Father. There's this revelation, revelatory nature of Jesus. And so again, here in his resurrected body, he reveals himself. This is a revelatory act. Now this phrase causes me to, to pay attention. When I'm hearing Jesus is revealing himself, we have the resurrected God-man of the universe who is going to ascend to the Father's right hand, and he's choosing to reveal himself to his disciples. My question is, what are we about to know about Jesus? What, in this encounter with his disciples, are we going to learn of his leadership, of his nature, of his character? And I feel like that's how we should position ourselves right now before we go any farther. Jesus, what do you want me to learn about you? What do you want me to experience about your nature? What do you want me to know about you? Because you're about to reveal yourself to your disciples and thus, as John wrote, to us as well. So Lord, we ask you for that same purpose that was in your heart in revealing yourself in this way to these seven disciples. Reveal yourself to us. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of revelation. Pull back the veil on his character, his nature. Verse 2. It said, Simon Peter called Thomas, uh, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were there. Simon Peter said to them, 
I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. Now, lots of preachers have said that, that this was Peter giving up of his calling and returning to his old occupation. I don't know if we can know that fully or not. I, I, I'm kind of like caught between the, the tides of this one because if he was returning to and, and kind of like denying his, his calling as a disciple, then it kind of says that six others of these guys were doing it as well. There's probably a measure of truth to that. There was definitely a measure of truth to Peter's discouragement. But they found themselves in Galilee. They had to eat. They're going fishing. Whether there's a measure of giving up, we don't know for sure. Let's go on. But it says this. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. How many of you guys have ever labored and toiled, it felt like all night, and it felt fruitless? How many of you guys have gone through seasons of life to where it just feels a little fruitless. I feel like Jesus allows us to experience those seasons of toil and nothing is being produced, nothing is, nothing is, is, is happening, it seems like, and he's making us hungry. He's making us desperate for him. It says in verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to him, to them, children, do you have any fish? Now this word children was just messing with me. You can also interpret it lads. Hey lads, do you have any fish? Or you can also interpret it, hey fellas, hey guys, do you have any fish? Now this is the God man. This is the king of the universe. This is him who just conquered death and he holds the keys to hell and Hades He's the living one who will never die again, and he's been given all authority. And he shows up on the shore, and he says, hey, guys. And I bet he had a smile on his face. Hey, lads, you got any fish? And this just speaks to me. I mean, Jesus could have said, servants, with this booming voice, like rushing water, like a trumpet, servants, bow down and worship me. But he says, hey guys. And it just carries this tone of friendship. He was truthful when he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends. In Hebrews, it tells us that, that we are privileged that Jesus, because we have the same source now, the Father, it's his source and it's our source, that he's not ashamed to call you and me brothers. And this looks like a friend or a brother starting to interact with other brothers and friends. Hey guys, do you have any fish? Let's go on. And they said to him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. I love Peter's response here. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, 
dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Now Jesus is being very intentional here. He is the all-knowing one who knows exactly what he is doing and what needs to be done. And he is reenacting the original calling of Peter that we read about earlier in the Gospels, that we read about in Luke chapter 5 and in a few other places. It's when Jesus was teaching on the Sea of Galilee and the crowd was backing him up. And so he got into a boat. He got into Simon Peter's boat. That wasn't an accident in Luke chapter 5. And he tells Simon Peter to push away. And he uses the natural reflection of the sea to carry his voice and so that there can be more crowds. And he teaches the crowds in Peter's boat. And I bet Peter was sitting at his feet and his jaw was just open. His jaw was dropped at the wisdom and at the majesty he was experiencing Jesus' teaching. And then after he's done, Jesus turns to Simon Peter and he says, push away and let's go for a fish. And Peter says this same phrase that, or that he had experienced here, that he was fishing all night and didn't catch anything. Jesus says that in Luke chapter 5. He says, Lord, we fished all night and we've caught nothing. But he says, but if you say, go cast your nets, I'm going to go cast my nets. And him and James and John, they're all here in John 21. And Luke 5, when they're first called to be Jesus' disciples, they cast their nets And they bring in a great quantity of fish. And it says, Peter says, away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And he bows before the Lord. And the Lord says, no longer are you just going to fish for fish. He says, Peter, you're going to fish for men. Now, again, or we need to remember that Peter had just had such a failure in his life. He had professed obedience and radical love and if all deny you I will never deny you and then he gets around a little campfire and there's a servant girl and she's accusing him of being one of his Jesus's disciples and we all know the story he denies three times and it says in the other gospels that on the third time the rooster crowed and Peter found Jesus's eyes and he remembered that Jesus had prophesied that he would deny him three times. Now, what blows me away is the kindness of Jesus to set the scenario for the first time he called Peter for the reinstatement of Peter as his disciple. I mean, this is kindness. Jesus is saying by doing this, Peter, I'm accepting you again and I'm giving you a new beginning just as I called you the first time. And I'm sure this scenario is plain in Peter's mind. It's the Lord. And he remembers the first time they threw down the nets and brought up the fish. And how he said, I'm a sinner away from me. And the Lord accepted a sinner. And Peter, with that memory, runs to Jesus, throws himself in the lake and just begins to swim. It's this act of abandonment. It's this act of desperation. Oh, it's a beautiful picture. Jesus is saying, Peter, you might be giving up right now. You might be doubting your calling as that fisher of men that I told you you were the first time. 
But he says, but it's still true. Let's go on, verse nine. When they had got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish. John tells us there's 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now one of the disciples, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. After he was raised from the dead. And when he had finished breakfast, Simon Peter, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So Jesus makes a transition here. And he's having breakfast. He's fixing them breakfast, which is just amazing to me. And Jesus begins to ask Peter if Peter loves him more than the other disciples that were there. Now, in the past, Peter had no problem with exerting a strong personal boast or with, like, self-confidence in the past. He was the self-confident disciple. He was the one first to speak. He kind of rose up as the leader of the group. Back in John 13, he says, I will lay down my life for you. In other places, he says, even if I'll turn away, I will never betray you. I will never turn away from you. But here, Peter doesn't have that boldness. The confidence in him has been shaken a little bit. And I just think what a gift this is when the confidence in, our shell, in ourselves is shaken a little bit and we don't trust ourselves as much as we used to trust ourselves in the past. How many of you walked, have walked with the Lord a little bit and you've experienced a little bit of that, I thought I was stronger than what I was, but I'm not that strong. You're prideful, I can do, I'm gonna take the world for the Lord, which is a good desire, has been tempered with a little humility. And I think we see the humble Peter in John chapter 21. And you know what's amazing? Jesus accepts the humble Peter. Jesus puts the humble Peter as the shepherd of his church. Jesus says, I accept this humble love that you are giving me right now. We're gonna go on in that. I just wrote down, have you ever made commitments and vows to the Lord that you were not able to keep have you, <laughs> exactly, me too. That's just the laugh. Let's just like, <laughs> yes. Have you ever experienced shame and regret for a lack of follow through? Have you ever been embarrassed around your friends and other believers for these failures? Peter was experiencing all of this. He's having Jesus say, Peter, do you love me? And he's experiencing all those emotions I remember the initial zeal of following Jesus in my early days. And I remember the initial failures even more. And I remember that season of thinking, is the Lord angry with me? I didn't keep my commitment. I feel like this is one of the common 
lies the enemy uses to keep us out of the fight for as long as he can. This is a common lie he uses in my life, and I hear it on the lips of other believers. He doesn't love me anymore. Oh, he can never forgive me. Or even if you believe in his forgiveness, you think there's still that shred of disappointment. Has anyone ever forgiven you? But when you kind of mess up the same way, there's still that, you experience that, just that layer of disappointment that they have in you. That's how we think Jesus is. Or that, okay, I might be still in the family of God, but I'm definitely not the favorite son anymore. God definitely likes a lot of his other children more than he likes and enjoys me when he thinks of me. Now, we don't say that, but we feel that emotion, don't we? We feel that on the inside. Let me clearly say this tonight. God is not angry with you. He is not disappointed with you. He is the good shepherd. He is a good father. And he always has a plan of restoration in his heart. I believe when his eyes met with Peter's and he said, Peter, do you love me? I think there was a smile, there was an invitation for Peter to say, I do love you, Lord. You know I love you. You know all things. Jesus is still our brother walking right beside us. Jesus is still our friend who meets us on the shore with a smile on his face. And he says, hey guys, Oh, if we could get a grasp of and an understanding of the forgiveness and the acceptance of Jesus. In the prophets in Isaiah chapter 1, it says this, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, this is the Lord speaking, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Now he says, come, let us reason together. That's not reasonable. Though your sins are red like scarlet, I'm going to wash them away and make them white as snow. Not like a little trace of pink in the snow to where you kind of remember that it's there. He's like, no, in my eyes, you're going to be made whole, made new, given a new beginning. And guys, this can happen time after time after time after time. This is what we walk in and we bear the fruit of constant repentance, constant returning, constant turning to the Lord and experiencing his love over and over and over again in the midst of our failures. I mean, look who he chooses. He restores those who deny him like Peter. He calls and forgives those who murder his people like Paul. He brings back Those who say, I will never believe, like Thomas. Thomas walks in, as we saw last week. He walks in to the midst of the disciples who have just seen Jesus, and he vows, I will never believe. And then he encounters Jesus, and he believes. And he's not disqualified. 
because he repents. He calls cowards from hiding in threshing floors and makes them leaders of his people like Gideon. He calls those who everyone is overlooking and underappreciating. But Jesus sees a king. That's the king of my people. Shepherding that flock out in that field, singing songs to me. No one sees him, but I see him. David was going to display this loving kindness and forgiveness of God over and over again in his life. And what does David do? He keeps returning. He keeps being restored. He keeps running hard. Not that, there's, not that there aren't consequences for disobedience, and we see that in David's life. But David runs back to the Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And that's what Jesus is doing right before our eyes in John chapter 21. He's renewing a steadfast spirit in Peter. It wasn't that the dream that was in Peter's heart to love the Lord in a radical way was wrong. The Lord loves that. He wants us to love him in radical ways. He wants us to obey him in radical ways. It was just that he experienced doing it in his own strength. And he experienced that failure. Now, Jesus is moving forward to restore him personally. I find it interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, it says, Paul says, that the first person that Jesus revealed himself to was Peter. And it says that in a singular way. It says before he revealed himself to any of the disciples, he encountered Peter first. So most commentators and most scholars believe that that, that, that was before Jesus walked into the room in John chapter 20 that we looked at, and he revealed himself to the 11, and before he came back and revealed himself to all 12. So there was a personal meeting with Jesus and Peter, and this is the, and I believe probably Jesus restored Peter then personally, but now Jesus is coming with another six witnesses there. There's seven disciples. There's over half of the disciples present, and now he's going to restore Peter corporately. And the Lord loves doing the both. He loves restoring us personally. And then he loves to restore us amongst the people of God. Isn't his nature and his character unlike any other? We write people off for the smallest things. Peter can't imagine forgiving someone more than seven times. And Jesus said, oh, there's coming a day in the future where you are going to experience my forgiveness like never before. And you are going to offer that forgiveness to the flock that I'm going to call you, call you to shepherd. Let's move on. He said to him, in verse 15, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time. Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Jesus is not doing this three times by accident. What the Lord was speaking to me this week was that he was allowing Peter in real time and in real history to replace his denial with confessions of love. I imagine Peter looking into the eyes. Now again, these are the eyes that met Peter right after he denied him. And Jesus, the great shepherd, the good father, he has Peter look into his eyes three times so that Peter would remember this encounter more than the other one. That he would remember these eyes of love, these eyes of forgiveness, these eyes of the resurrected God who does know everything. You know all things. You know what's in my heart. And Jesus, as the best leader that has ever been, says, I know what's in your heart, but you need to know what's in your heart. And you need to see my response to the confession of what's in your heart. It's, I accept this love. Guys, the way to continued renewal, the way to continued restoration when we fall or when we're walking with the Lord is confessions of our love for him. Confessions of our love in worship. Confessions of our love in obedience, but just telling him, Lord, I love you. I love you. When we see him in the word and our hearts are moved, we say, Lord, I love your nature. I love your character. I'm not like you. I'm not walking as closely to you as I want to be, but I love you. And I want you to work your love within me. So Peter gets that eye-to-eye confession and that replacement of the denial with, I love you. And Jesus accepts his love. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Now, I think it's interesting that when Jesus says, I love you, it's the agape love. Do you agape me? And Peter, in that place of humility, he's still a little wobbly. He's like, oh, and I, I don't know if I love you the way you love me, but I phileo you, which is kind of the lesser love in the Greek. It wasn't the unconditional, forever, never going to give up love. He's like, I thought I had that, but, but Jesus, I don't know. I phileo you. I brotherly love you. I have, a, I have great affection for you. And Jesus accepts Peter's confession of a lesser love than him. He's like, that's okay. I can work with that humble love. I can work with that. He says, tend my sheep. He says, feed my flock. He says, you display your love for me by pouring out the compassion that you're experiencing, by pouring out the shepherding that you're experiencing right now. I mean, think of Jesus as the shepherd in this chapter. He's literally feeding his flock. Like he's on the beach cooking fish to feed his sheep that are coming to him from the ocean, from the Sea of Galilee. He's actually feeding them. He's made a fire. I mean, this is, again, the God-man, the resurrected Christ, the king of the universe, and he's cooking fish on a seashore. A friend of mine once said that if you can't imagine Jesus as a dinner guest party, in, as, a, as a dinner guest at a dinner party in your home and seeing the trash overflowing and getting up and changing the trash and taking it out and putting a new bag in and sitting back down at your dinner table, you don't know the Jesus of the Gospels. The shepherd of the sheep is the greatest servant 
of the sheep. And that's what he's doing right now. He's serving Peter. He's restoring Peter. He's leaving the 99. He's going after the one who has gone astray. They all went astray, but he went astray with a little bit more zeal. Now, I love people like this. I love people that just give their whole heart and just, boom, hit the wall, you know? It's like there's a cartoon shape. It's like in those cartoons where they just run through the wall and there's this, like, cartoon, like, (laughs) anyway, hole in the wall, whatever. That's what Peter's done. He's like, I failed so miserably. And Jesus is being the good shepherd, and he's bringing him back. Guys, this is the nature and character of our God. And this is the way Peter was called to shepherd. I bet when, John, I bet when Jesus said, after Peter gave the great confession, you are the son of God, and he said, Peter, you're right, and upon this rock I will build my church, I bet Peter never thought that the way he was going to build his church was on Peter's testimony of failure and restoration. I bet that never crossed his mind. When we hear those glorious prophetic words like, the Lord's going to do this, the Lord's going to do that, and we go, yes, yes, I got a prophecy. Here we go, Lord. I'm going to be a hero in the kingdom. And then we fall flat on our face. It's the testimony that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Not, we, we're forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. We're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. We're restored by the blood of the Lamb. And then we overcome by the word of our testimony. Not of our strength, but of his goodness and grace and kindness toward us in our weakness. We don't need any testimony of personal strength in the kingdom of God. We need testimony of God's strength working through weak, humble failures who get it wrong and who turn back to him and say, but I'm encountering his love once again. I'm experiencing the restoration of the shepherd once again. God builds his kingdom on the testimony of former failures going, but look how good he is. Look what he did in my life. Look how he raised me up. Look how he restored me. You can tell I'm a little excited about this, but oh, this is truth, guys. (laughs) Thanks, Brian. I love you. (laughs) He says this, feed my lambs. Peter's commandment in response to his love for Jesus was to feed his lambs. Peter was to be a shepherd exactly as Jesus had been a shepherd to him for three years, and he was as he was experiencing Jesus being a shepherd to him right now. And then let's go on. Verse 18 of John chapter 21. After this confession and after Jesus accepts Peter's love, he accepts that weaker love. He says, I can work with that. I can work with that humble love. I know you're a little unsure of yourself right now. That's good. I want you dependent on me. Jesus says, truly, truly, Peter, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk you wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, John's writing this after the death of Peter. John outlived Peter. And so John is writing this book from a place of knowing Peter has been martyred. Peter has gone to be with the Lord. So in verse 19, he said, this he said 
to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now this phrase, another will stretch out your hands, as it's used here, was a common phrase in the, uh, in the time of the disciples to describe crucifixion. It was another would stretch out your hands and they would tie you to the beam that you were going to carry to the vertical beam that they were going to put you on in crucifixion. So it, it, was a, it, was, it wasn't that cryptic. It sounds cryptic to us. But I think when Peter heard this, he was hearing the prophecy from the Lord's mouth of how he was going to glorify him in his death. Now, some might think that's a little morbid. I think Jesus was saying this, Peter, you wanted to love me with radical zeal. You wanted to walk with me to the cross. You wanted to give your life with me. He said, but now I'm going to be with you always. And the strength that you didn't have to love me and to sacrifice your life for me the way that you wanted to, I'm going to help you to do that in the days to come. And your death is going to bring glory to me. Now the reality is that if we call ourselves disciples, this is all of our calling. We all have that death sentence over our lives, but it's not a bad thing. He who loves his life, that's the one who's going to lose it. But he who hates his life or who looks to Jesus' promises and love and acceptance that he's given him and weighs it greater than his own life, it's him that is going to gain his life for eternal life. It says, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And I think it's amazing. Put 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 up on the board. For to this you have been called, this is Peter writing, to his churches in northern Israel. And he says this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Meaning, Christ suffered for you. Christ went to the cross, and you're called to suffer for him. He who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter's instructing his churches to suffer and to look to Jesus and how he suffered for them. This was the one who failed at doing the thing he's encouraging them to do. This is the one who couldn't do it and he's telling others to be faithful to suffer. But he is experiencing the empowering of the Holy Spirit. He's accepting Jesus' identity over in his life rather than his own failure. And he's saying, guys, I messed this up one time. But guess what? God builds his kingdom on the backs of failures. Last point, And then we're going to end our time in prayer tonight. Verse 20. Peter turned aside and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to him, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, it is not my will. If it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. 
So Peter gets this restoration. He gets this promise of future strength for suffering that he didn't have before. And then Peter wants to know about John. <laughs> I love this. This is how we are. How is John going to serve? How is John going to be martyred? <laughs> you just gave me a death sentence. <laughs> are you giving that to him? <laughs> and Jesus says to Peter, that's none of your business. That's mine. You follow me. Now, to me, this is so refreshing. This tells me to stay in my lane and not get distracted by looking around and comparing my serving, comparing my labor, comparing my love for Jesus with other people. I feel like Jesus is saying this to us tonight. What is that to you? You follow me. As a minister, I think of Jesus saying, I say, Lord, what about Bethel? They're walking in such power, anointing, and favor. I feel like the Lord's saying, what is that to you? You follow me. Hillsongs, as a songwriter, Hillsongs, walking in such anointed worship, such influence. What's that to you? That's what I have for them. They're following me. You follow me. I think of the businessman, looking at the other businessman. What's success, what wealth, what favor on that other one's life? What is that to you? That's how I'm leading them. You follow me. I think of the mother comparing her family to another family. Oh, their kids are so wonderful. Their marriage looks so great. Their da-da-da-da. No, no, no. What is that to you? That's nothing. That's not me and you. You follow me. What if we could be freed from covetousness, even in the church, of other people's lives, ministries, professions, and just follow Jesus? What if we spent more time looking at Jesus and following him and being obedient to him than we were kind of grumbling about the lot we were dealt in life? I think we would find a lot more joy and a lot more freedom. And I think we would, well, I think that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Oh, that's a good chapter, isn't it? Now, we've got to read the last phrase of the chapter just because we've preached through the whole book of John. And I'm just going to finish by, we've got to read these last verses, okay? Verse 23. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Verse 25. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, meaning in Jesus' life. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Guys, we're going to get to hear about these things in the age to come. And we're going to get testimony of what the Spirit of Christ did in our own lives. They're going to say, no, tell us what he did with you. We know what he did when he was on the earth. We already heard that. Tell us what he did with you. Give us that testimony. It says, Jesus did many other things, which... 
if we're written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I'm just going to read that again. This was his kindness. This is how he walked. We have beautiful stories, but Jesus was even greater than what we have account for. Isn't that wonderful? It says this, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written if each of the things unmentioned were written down one by one. And then John just says, amen. He says, it's true, I agree. And then just closes the book. (laughs) So instead of going into our small group time tonight, I know some of you were looking at the time going, oh no, I don't know if this is happening or not. I just wanted to end this time with a, with a, a time of prayer. I, I felt so tender as I, were, as I was preparing in John 21. And I feel that, that many of us battle with that feeling of being disqualified. That because of what we've done in the past, the Lord either can't forgive us or the Lord can't use us in the next season. I feel like some of us are walking also with the feeling that the Lord is constantly disappointed with us. And that the Lord has a greater awareness for us tonight of his joy, of his pleasure over us, of his love over us. We just saw the way Jesus deals with those who have severely messed up. We see in Acts chapter 9 the way that Jesus deals with a man called Saul who is severely warring against him. And I feel like the Holy Spirit has that revelation for us tonight, not just to hear about but to experience from his Holy Spirit. Now this is something that I have returned to time and time again. The revelation of God's pleasure over me. God's enjoyment over me. God's acceptance of me. Even when I haven't walked in perfect obedience. When I failed. Guys, I have experienced that feeling of being a failure in ministry and disqualifying myself so many times. I felt it as a father. I felt it as a husband. I felt it as a friend. And I've gone through long seasons of letting that kind of keep me out of the battle. Yeah, I put a smile on my face and I said the right things, but on the inside, I felt like a failure and that the Lord was displeased with me. And that feeling, that warring, that lie from the enemy kept me from running to him and experience that love that's in his eyes. And that, Marcus, do you love me? I, I do. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Luna, are you still in the room? Awesome. Would you come back up to the keyboard? So we're just going to have a ministry time tonight. Let's stand to our feet, if you don't mind.
and we're first going to pray for, and I actually want you to come down to the front, and we're going to gather around you, and we're going to pray for you. As believers, we're going to come around you. We're going to be the love of Jesus, that you can look into our eyes as you see his eyes and hear those words of restoration, hear those words of love. So let's, we're going to deal with this first one. If you feel disqualified because of the ways that you have disobeyed God in the past, now you might put the smile on your face, you might even be in ministry, but you had that feeling of, how could the Lord ever use me? How could the Lord ever put me on the front lines and place me as the head, as a leader, as a shepherd in his body? If that's you with feelings of just disqualification, Lord, you, you can't use me. Or you could use me a little bit, but you can't use me in a great way. You can't really get glory from my life. If that's you, I just want you to come down to the front right now. Jared, I love you. So honest, so wonderful. We're just going to wait for a minute. Let's just close our eyes while we do this. If that's you, just come down. We're going to end this time with praying for you. Thank you, Lord. say this again, the Lord builds his kingdom on the testimony of weak and broken men experiencing his love and his forgiveness and his grace, experiencing his restoration, women experiencing his restoration, children, teenagers experiencing his love and restoration. I'm just going to wait just one more minute. I just want to say this. I, the first seven years of me being a believer, I was at the altar, every altar call. I felt like I, I learned how to pray at the altar as I would confess my sins, as I would give myself to the Lord. There's something so precious about the altar, about that time of just sweet prayer to God and getting prayer by other believers. The second thing I just want to, I was just feeling, if you walk, if you're just battling and you, you, you're walking with this feeling that the Lord is constantly disappointed in you, that you are, yeah, you're in the family, but you're not that favorite son. <laughs> you're not that favorite daughter. You're not the one that he smiles at when he walks, when you walk in the room. When you walk in the room, that kind of stern frown comes on his face, that that vague, expressionless, unresponsive nature that you might experience in others, that if you feel like that's how the Lord responds to you, you have this feeling of, of just, I, I don't know if he likes me as much as everyone says he does. <laughs> If that's you, I just want you to come on down. We want to pray for you. I want to say that's a lie from the enemy. He has a smile on his face when he thinks of you. He has joy in his heart no matter what stage 
of your life that you are in, no matter what scenario that you are walking through, if you want just a greater freedom and awareness of God's loving compassion for you, I just want you to come on down and and kneel as well. Mm. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.